This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. Do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, another episode with Sky and I. Uh, and we are in the studio yeah, again we this are. week. Woo! So excited. <laughs> Today we have a very special episode, like every other episode, but <laughs> this is another one of our couples episodes. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> or wait, do we reveal that at the beginning? Yeah, or? we do. Oh, okay. Cool. I think so. We should just say, because, yeah, I mean. I mean, it'll say Chacon and Chacon. Yeah, they'll be like, oh, are they married? <laughs> Might as well just be like, they came in together. <laughs> I'm tired. It's all right. Yesterday was Christmas. Christmas was yesterday. <laughs> all right. So I will start with my half of the couple today. I have Jesus Maria Chacon, number 3043. And my sources, of course, the Idaho Statesman, Chronicling America, the Trinidad, Colorado town website, which had all these residency records, oh, cool. which showed everybody that lived in the town and what their jobs were and their addresses. They had them from like the 1890s through like the 1950s. It's, it's a pretty wow. interesting. It's kind of cool. Go Trinidad, Colorado. Yeah. And uh, Idaho Supreme Court records. So Jesus Maria Chacon, he's born on September 11th, 1863, and this is contentious, but in one record I found that he was born in Trinidad, Colorado, in several future census records he would say he was born in New Mexico, where he says his parents were born. Mm -hmm. 1863 in Trinidad is right after coal is discovered there, so there's a huge influx of people coming to that area and it was also this hub for spanish and mexican traders who liked trinidad because it was so close to the santa fe trail which ran from franklin missouri to santa fe new mexico mm -hmm. and so you know jobs in trading and coal mining were pretty present yep. and uh, there was plenty <laughs> to do yeah so uh i found him listed as a laborer in the 1888 1892 and 1895 trinidad colorado residence directories mm -hmm. i know he stayed there for about almost 32 years and then the next record i find which i believe is him is from salt lake city and it's a census showing him living in on west 7th south in salt lake and this is for all of our Salt, Salt Lake listeners. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of near mm -hmm. the airport. West 7th, yeah. It said on that census that he's born in New Mexico, and the children listed their homes as Colorado and Utah. So mm. that's why I think it's probably him, because it does okay. reference all this Colorado time. Uh, and it would have lined up with the 1890s residence directories. But he also lists his wife as 46-year-old Monica. Their children are Morris, Pablita, Wilbur, Lucy, Vera, and Jesus Jr., and one they simply write as baby on the census. Oh. 
And unfortunately, this baby who yeah. they named Sophia actually died three months and 22 days into her little life. So, yeah. yeah. The next record I came across for Jesus was in 1918 and 1919 in Pocatello in the city directories, which mm-hmm. we found on Ancestry.com, mm-hmm. listing JM living at 450 South 3rd Avenue mm. in Pocatello. And not long after that, on October 7th, 1919, his wife Monica dies. Oh. And she's actually buried at the Mountain View Cemetery in Pocatello. Okay. Uh, the 1920 census says that he and his daughter Lucy, she's still living at home with him, are still living in Pocatello. He's widowed and he lists his parents' birthplace again as New Mexico and his birthplace as New Mexico as well. Okay. So there are quite a few inconsistencies yeah. in his life story, but yeah. we'll see that. Uh, Throughout this whole thing. Yes. <laughs> I think we should lead on to you now. And sorry, what year was he born? 1863. Okay. So I have got number 3044, Rebecca Chacon. She was born in 1890, so that gives you an idea of the age gap between these two. My sources, of course, her inmate file, Chronicling American Newspapers, Ancestry.com, Pocatello.us, because I will get into the history of Pocatello, oh, good. Daily Statesman articles, and then the Shoshone Bannock official website, that is www2, so the number 2, sbtribes.com. So if you want to check that out, and it actually is quite fascinating, so feel free to check that out. Wikipedia, and then one called tokencatalog.com, and I will get into that a little bit later. Mm. So as I said, um, Rebecca, uh, she was born in Mexico around 1890. On the marriage record of of JM and Rebecca, she lists her name as Maria R.E. Villasenor. R might stand for Rebecca, because we actually don't, when she comes in, she never goes as by Maria, mm-hmm. and so, but I don't know what E stands for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately, pretty much her life is really unknown to me. She's really difficult to find. I don't know where in Mexico she's from, and I, like I said, I don't really even know if Maria or Rebecca Villasenor is actually her name. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty certain she was born in Mexico, but that's pretty much it. <laughs> um, eventually, she moves to the United States, um, but she is not in the United States long enough to become a citizen, and that's going to be important a little bit later. She ends up in Pocatello by late 1920, early 1921. You said that his wife, or the last time you see him in the census is 1916-ish, uh, 1919? 1920 is the last time I see him in the census in Pocatello, okay. and then 1919 is when his wife dies, when okay. he's widowed. Yeah. Um, so this all sort of lines up. So um, Rebecca's living in Pocatello. There's actually a fairly, um, at that time, there's a, a, a decent-sized Mexican community out there. Mm-hmm. And so she is apparently, she's, I think, probably met JM, I would bet. But she also met a man named Pedro Valdez, and uh, she and Pedro start an affair. And Pedro is married to another woman. This is according to uh, the attorney G.L. Tyler, who was the assistant of the prosecuting attorney um, McDougal, and McDougal's the one who did all the research and investigation. So according to his assistant, basically, he says that Pedro was married and they were having an affair. This is sort of the only time that we see um, it mentioned that they were having an affair, mm-hmm. but it seems that that probably is is accurate. Pedro and his wife were supposedly in the process of getting a divorce at the time of the affair. And this, Anthony and I have sort of talked about how disputed this is, because mm-hmm. this is only mentioned sort of the one time by by this attorney, is that Rebecca apparently had found a way to secure a portion of Pedro's paycheck for herself. 
I don't know how, and I don't really know why, but she doesn't seem the most, like, she kind of seems like a, I don't want to say creep, but basically, like, a, she just doesn't really seem super honest yeah. um, from what I can tell. And she, she kind of seems to be doing things if it suits her, like, is to her advantage, mm-hmm. whether that's money-wise, whether that's um, marriage-wise, as we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. She kind of just does things to to be good for herself. Mm-hmm. And so on March 30th, 1921, um, this is where uh, JM and Rebecca get married in Pocatello, Bannock County, Idaho. I don't know why she chooses to marry JM instead I of waiting for I Pedro's do. divorce. You do. So JM is pretty well known. He's a pretty prominent Mexican resident in the mm-hmm. city. And he had actually been working as a treasurer for this Hodds Carriers and Buildings Labor Union for six years. Mm. So, I mean, he's pretty well known. He's mm. kind of he's the man about wealthy. town. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, you know, what? how old is he? About 60, almost 60 years mm-hmm. old. And, and Rebecca's in her 30s. Yeah. So. And he has a guaranteed supply of of uh, comfort yep. <laughs> that she might be looking for. Yep. So they get married. March 30th, March 1921. 30th. Pedro is not real happy about this marriage. Yes. So he and his wife actually reconcile. And so uh, sort of because of this, the Valdez and the Chacon families sort of become at odds with one another. Mm-hmm. So I will talk a little bit about, about Pocatello. It's quite interesting. Um, don't know why it's called Pocatello. I tried to look up what the name means, and there's, um, I get into that a little bit, but um, there's not like a, any particular definition of yeah. it. Um, so Pocatello is in the southeastern part of Idaho in Bannock County. Um, of course, the Shoshone and Bannock tribes o- occupied the area for hundreds, maybe thousands of years before white settlers, and it is currently home to the Fort Hall Native American Reservation. Um, Pocatello is supposedly named after a local Native American chief who helped railroad builders. It was Chief Pocatello. So that's sort of the only definition that I could find. Yeah. So the Fort Hall Reservation history, this is where that the Shoshone Bannock official website comes in. And I, I was going to really get into the history, and then I decided I should wait and save it for uh, one of our inmates who is actually a Shoshone Bannock yeah. native. But um, so the lands of the Fort Hall Reservation are the ancestral lands of the Shoshone Bannock peoples. Um, and that whole the whole ancestral lands included area in modern day Idaho, Oregon, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, Montana, and actually up into Canada. So large swaths of land um, were uh, Shoshone Bannock. And then in 1868, the tribe signed the Treaty of Fort Bridger, which established the Fort Hall Reservation through an executive order. And that's how most Native American reservations uh, were sort of parceled out. And originally, it was 1.8 million acres, but a survey error actually made the land 1.2 million acres. um, Quote, unquote, error. Yeah. Uh, And so the current, current day, and then sort of as the years have gone on, the the reservation has been sort of the boundaries have become smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm. And this is what we see quite often uh, for uh, Native American reservations. Um, And so the current day Fort Hall reservation comprises of about 814 square miles. So it lost, I don't even know how to convert acres into square miles, but that's not large at all. Yeah. From 1.2 million acres. Wow. And so, like I said, I want to pay more respect to the Shoshone Bannock people, but I 
do want to do that with a four hall uh, Native American inmate, so I will cover that, the one that I know of next season. Um, So Fort Hall is called Fort Hall because a white settler named Nathaniel Wyeth from Massachusetts created a fort in the area for fur trading. So he just called it Fort Hall. Don't know why Hall of all things, because that's not his last name, but that's what it's called. And so when fur trading ended, which is sort of the, the main reason for a lot of these forts, Fort Hall became a supply point for immigrants traveling on the Oregon Trail. So that's the Fort Hall Reservation. And then Pocatello, the Idaho Gold Rush in 1860 created a need for supplies and services in nearby towns. And so Pocatello was originally a corridor for railroad freight lines, mm-hmm. um, sort of a lot, how a lot of Idaho towns, yeah. especially in, in the, the South, southeastern yeah. region, sort of come about. Definitely. So as the gold rush dies down, then agriculture starts to draw people into the area, which is what we saw with Idaho Falls last episode. And so with this agriculture, the region becomes a large supplier of potatoes, grain, and other crops. We love those potatoes. The Union Pacific Railroad extends its service into, um, quote, Pocatello Junction, and that becomes an important transportation crossroad. And so as this crossroad sort of develops, then residential and commercial development becomes a mainstay around 1882. And then Pocatello is founded as a town in 1889 and was known as the Gateway to the Northwest mm-hmm. because miners and trailing immigrants pass through the Portneuf Gap, which is um, a gap that the, basically is cut out of the canyon that's right there um, and to get where they wanted to go. Oh. Um, so Gateway to the Northwest because everyone had to pass through love uh, that stuff, uh, that area. And it becomes known um, as the Trade Center and Transportation Junction. So Mm. this is kind of a really important sort of stopping point um, with the fort that was there and then with these trails that cut through and and the the railroad. And so it's actually a pretty big hub down there in Pocatello. So in 1901, the Academy of Idaho was founded, which eventually becomes Idaho State University, which is one of the three major universities in the Mm -hmm. state. We've talked about the other one at the University of Idaho up in Mm -hmm. Moscow. And then, of course, the other one is is Boise State here in Boise. So Idaho State University and the Union Pacific Railroad are still major employers in Pocatello. Um, And then uh, Pocatello, sort of because it's so small, it's uh, along with a lot of places in Idaho are starting to be ranked as sort of these nationally known areas for certain certain things. And so Forbes named Pocatello one of the best small places for business six years in a row. Um, and, And Pocatello is continually ranked as one of the best small towns to raise a family and retire. Wow. So Pocatello is no joke down there. Yeah. Um, Congrats. So in 2010, the population was 54,255. The 2018 estimate is 56,266. So Pocatello is the fifth largest city in the state. And so to tie it back to my old movies, which I always do, in Judy Garland's A Star is Born, she sings about being born in a trunk in the Princess Theater in Pocatello, Idaho. And I have done my research. There was no such thing as the Princess <sighs> Theater. But even in 1954, Pocatello was somehow known, I think, because the name was kind of funny. But I mm. actually, um, and there's another song called Boise, Idaho. Um, it's Judy Garland and Bing Crosby, and they sing about Pocatello, I think. So nice. anyway, just had to tie that in because wow, that's like who it. I am as a person. <laughs> So that is uh, Pocatello. So this is where JM and Rebecca are. So I think I will hand it over to you um, to to talk about their crime a bit. Yes. So on the evening of Monday, July 13th, 1921, there's a dance being held at the Mike Gates Pool Hall in Pocatello. And uh, Mike Gates is this 
he's a Pocatello pioneer, mm-hmm. and he was born in Italy. He helped build and organize the town and was a major political figure and leader in local labor unions. Uh, he would regularly travel to the East Coast and collect Southern European laborers to bring them back to Pocatello and to work <laughs> on the Short Line Railroad. And so he was really well known among mm-hmm. labor unions, which would be why, you know, you invite in these folks, JM's family and friends, and, and they're all having a dance at this hall. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems that prohibition did not stop Mm-mm. the revelers because everybody was intoxicated. Of course, mm-hmm. prohibition had been going on here in Idaho for almost six years at this point. Um, Now, before you go any further, I do have some cool stuff about Mike Gates Pool Hall. Oh, yeah. So I wanted to see if it, like, if sort of we could find out where in the town it was. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find anything on that. But what I did find were two cool old tokens from the pool hall at Uh tokencatalog.com. You probably saw these. Um, So there there are two. And so the first one on one side says Mike Gates Pool Hall, Pocatello, Idaho. And then the other side says good for 12 and a half cents in trade. And then the second one on one side, it says 4th Avenue Pool Hall, Mike Gates. Um, So it would have been around 4th Avenue, but I couldn't find sort of where the address might have been. And then the other side says good for five cents in trade. I would guess that the 12 and a half cent one is older. There aren't any dates Mm -hmm. on this. Um, But I also was sort of wondering, like, what these coins were because it didn't Mm -hmm. say on the website what they were just said like this is where it's from and that's cool so um they could have been like i sort of assumed they were like slot machine tokens but i they're probably more likely to be trade tokens exactly and i didn't know what trade tokens were so i looked that up on wikipedia um so trade tokens were tokens that were issued by merchants um for goods with the agreement that they could actually use they could but the, the agreement obviously if you get um, Mike Gates Pool Hall, you're going to be spending it in, in his pool hall, but if you have some left over, then you can go into town and basically use it as a 12 and a half mm-hmm. cents sort of coin. Um, so you can take them to the grocery store and say, yeah. sorry, I don't have cash on me right now, but I have three of these coins. What can 37 cents get me, basically? Mm-hmm. Or they can just exchange it for cash, mm-hmm. basically. And so it promotes trade and extends credit to customers and I would imagine also sort of builds a community. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool. So anyway, yeah. that's Mike Gates Pool Hall. Yeah. I thought that was just kind of a cool yeah, little yeah. Those, rabbit hole I went down. The community coins that we have are so fascinating. It was such a, a weird and mm-hmm. unique little thing. I mean, I probably, it's just created. weird to us to think yeah. about like the fact that you could basically you take your like Pojo tokens right, down to yeah. like your, your local grocer <laughs> and be like, hey, I don't Some have cash eggs, on me, yeah. but take my Pojo token and I'll take a gallon of milk. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was like a local currency. Yeah. It made it worked here. It, yeah. it just totally worked. Yeah. There's, there's a local researcher. He's regularly at the archives and he collects mm. these and I've seen parts of his collection and it's it's extensive. It's wow. businesses from all over Idaho, you know, and all the Boise coins, all these local like mm-hmm. theater coins. And oh, that's like that. cool. So fascinating. I love that. Good work. Thank, Thank you, you for looking that up. That's I awesome. do what I can. <laughs> you do a lot more than I do. Oh, not this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so. Prohibition, drinking, things are getting out of hand. Yes. Where do we go from here? So actually at the dance, Rebecca spots Pedro Valdez. They seem to have a little bit of a an argument something mm-hmm. starts to escalate mm-hmm. but the party actually moves on to a house mm-hmm. house at 242 east hayden street which yeah. is no longer there i also looked that up yeah it's yeah sort of at a crossroad sort of right by the railroad What's tracks that? there's like a big was that it's like a grain silo or That's something what is thought. what it looked yeah. like yeah i was like what is that yeah <laughs> <laughs> so 
they are in this other home and they're still drinking and having a party and there are a couple different newspaper accounts of this in one account pedro actually stops and tells the chacones that he's going to go grab more liquor and then jokingly pulled out a gun and started waving it around but everybody thought it was in jest so Mm -hmm. there was nothing added to that at about 2 a.m though on july 12th 1921 rebecca and pedro get into an argument Mm -hmm. now one of the one of the supposed arguments is that Rebecca wants Pedro back, mm-hmm. or vice versa. They're sort of both right. reports. So there's there's too much attention yes. being given between those two. Whatever right. it is, yes. something is going on. Yes. And uh, Rebecca, who's described as being more intoxicated than uh-huh. Pedro, she gets heated as they're arguing. Now, did you also see the thing in the newspaper that Pedro supposedly said it was not in his policy to enter into... Oh, sorry. That's Oh, yeah. That's, cut, that's, it, cut that whole part. Oh, no, yeah. I was just going to say that. He, Pedro says that he doesn't, he doesn't get into fights with women, which just escalates her anger. She's getting even more upset. Which, oh, I don't fight with women. Right, like, which I think would oh. maybe sort of go to the fact that she, it seems like she wants maybe him back if he's willing to like I don't get into arguments with women and like walk away whereas right. I feel like if he was trying to get her back then right. he would not have done that like yeah. he would have really tried to to stay and argue for his, his uh, side or whatever yeah so it escalates she pulls out a 38 revolver and begins shooting and the first <laughs> shot <laughs> strikes Pedro about two inches below the left breast, the second enters the right hand, and the third his left hip. Mm-hmm. JM jumps into the fray. He pulls out his revolver. He opens fire on Pedro, and the bullet actually goes through Pedro's head, fractures his skull, <sighs> probably kills him instantly. Yeah. Pedro's wife jumps into the fight. Mm -hmm. She pulls out a gun, and Rebecca actually sees this. She raises her gun to shoot Pedro's wife and accidentally shoots JM, (laughs) shoots her own husband in the abdomen, and he falls to the ground. It seems that, I don't know what happened to Pedro's wife. Maybe she fled. Mm -hmm. Maybe Rebecca saw the air and dropped her gun. I don't know, but Pedro's wife was not shot in the fray. And neither was Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, neither was Rebecca. So when police arrive, they actually find Pedro dead on the floor. When they enter the second room, they see Rebecca lying on the floor, and the officer goes over and tries to lift her up, and she actually turns and raises the revolver at him. And the officer grabbed her arm, pulled the gun out of her hand, and arrested her. Gosh. JM is sent to the hospital Mm -hmm. where he stays for for a few weeks right. um, and, healing and, from this wound. And Valdez, is he's dead on the scene, mm-hmm. and he had not just a wife, he had seven kids. Seven children. Oh. So the trial, the courthouse was packed during this week-long trial due to their status yep. in the community. JM is charged with murder in the first degree and sentenced to life in the prison. Mm-hmm. And so Rebecca, she pleads not guilty. Mm-hmm. I think sort of the argument being that she didn't mean that it wasn't premeditated. It couldn't be murder. It mm-hmm. should have, you know, maybe been involuntary manslaughter or something like that. But she is found guilty of murder in the second degree and sentenced to 25 to 50 years in the Idaho oh. State Penitentiary. And her jury deliberated for 24 hours, oh, which is wow. such a long time. And then she enters the Idaho State Penitentiary on October 28th. 
1921. Do you want me to read her statistics? Yeah. Okay. What's her intake like? Pretty small. Rebecca Chacon, murderer in the second degree. She is 31 years old when she comes in. She is five feet even and 156 pounds. Mm. She has black hair and maroon eyes, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Her complexion is listed as yellow, which is uh, racist and terrible. No mustache. Born in Mexico, 1890. Occupation housewife. Received from Bannock County, 1028-21 for 25 to 50 years on October 6th, 1921. So that is her intake. JM's intake. He's received same day, October 28th, 1921. Crime, murder in the first degree. Sentence, the balance of his natural life. I just love that they wrote that. <laughs> the balance of his natural yeah. life. That's a sweet way to say it. And this he is given at the age of 58. Born September 11th, 1863, Colorado. Occupation, laborer. Height, 5 feet, 6 and 7 eighths inches tall. Complexion, Mexican. Weight, 134 pounds. Hair color, black. Color of eyes, maroon. Married, has four children. Interestingly, his father died when he was seven, and his mother died when he was 35. I didn't realize that he had lost his father so early. He had religious instruction and attended Sunday school in the Catholic Church, which he was still a member of. He attended school for nine years and could read and write. Uh, He was abstinent, but he did chew and smoke tobacco, but he didn't do drugs. He had no former imprisonment. Uh, His nearest relative was Maricello Chacon in Pocatello. His build was regular. His teeth were fair. He had a mustache and $5.56 in his pocket when he arrived. And he had lived in Idaho for about 17 years. Well, so this is, I mean, what you can see here. There's actually a couple different interesting things to point out. Mm. First of all is the difference between the intake information. I don't want to say how little they cared for women, but really how almost as if like we don't need that much on them because Mm. they're women. Like they're not you know they're not that much of a threat if they escape or whatever yeah this is 1921 this is the same year that lida comes in lida is what 3052 so she comes in nine eight people after yeah as we're learning women are actually quite capable of doing horrible things but Mm -hmm. you know they just don't don't give them sort of the same consideration that they Mm -hmm. give men and then i think another interesting thing is the fact that um jm is is american he was born in america Mm -hmm. either in new mexico or in colorado but he's listed as mexican complexion Mm -hmm. um, whereas rebecca is literally born in Mexico mm-hmm. um, and is listed uh, as a yellow complexion, which is interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, and so you can see consideration is not taken for basically race and, and, and sort of the nuances of race and mm-hmm. that it, it really just comes down to, to some pretty major bias and racism yeah. back in the 1920s. And, and I, I mean, I think society is just to blame for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not here to, to blame any of the prison officials or anything like that. Right. That's just the way society was, unfortunately. Yeah. And like the fact that they're married in March mm-hmm. And, and then they're in an they're October. In prison by October. Mm-hmm. Like that to me, how awkward was that, you know, ride from Pocatello to Boise <laughs> 
to the prison and did they get to have a last kiss and goodbye before were, she was were separated they interested from him? in that right yeah where are they i because don't because i i just don't feel like rebecca was in love with him at all mm-hmm. you know if that's sort of the, the vibe we're going for here i don't think there's much love at least from her side i don't know right. about his side yeah but i don't think she's that interested mm-hmm. and I, I do imagine a very quiet like awkward yeah ride back that's... back to boise Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, and discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there. If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov donation.aspx. Be sure to click the Behind Gray Walls podcast tab on the left side of the page. Any donation amount is appreciated and will go toward improving the quality of this podcast, enabling us to bring you the stories that we love and that we hope you love too. So, they actually attempt to uh, appeal the Supreme Court for a retrial in October of 1922, so a year into their incarceration. Mm -hmm. They said that the case had some problems. They alleged that there was prejudice against them, which affected the outcome because they are not white. Right. The jury had been separated three times during the trial, twice in the courthouse, and one time while taking a recess at this cigar store, the solo cigar store in Pocatello, when four jurors actually stood out front while the rest of them went inside. And while they were sitting out at the sidewalk in the front, a man walked up to one of the jurors, didn't say a word, just walked up, shook his hand, nodded, and then walked inside. And so, you know, the bailiff was like, yeah, nothing was said, but, you know, what was going on there? Right. This this is kind of serious. Right. They also stated that the prosecuting attorney had made signs and motions towards the jurors when the jury was sitting in the courtroom, which you can't do. Nope. Rebecca and J.M. also objected to the alleged statements that were brought up in the courtroom. So right as Rebecca was being arrested, she said, I don't care. I know they are going to arrest me in a few moments, but I would not lose hope in killing a gringo. And then there was another statement uttered in the courtroom that said, uh, if they'd taken her as a prisoner for a year or two, she wouldn't lose hope of coming back and exterminating the whole race of Valdez. Wow. So, which, that should not have been included in the record for the jurors. And uh, they also argued that the description of the room where the killing took place was incorrect. Mm. That the room was changed from July 12th when the shooting occurred and September 8th when the jurors were actually led to that room. That it wasn't the same room. They'd cleaned it up and done all this stuff to it. Interesting. And so these were all things, they seemed like pretty decent appeals for a new trial. But... The court said that the jury being separated didn't influence them, that the defense should have brought up the prosecutor's signals to the judge earlier, and that it's too late to look back on the house because now it's been a year and several months. So basically (laughs) it was too late for them to to apply for a lot of these things. Hmm. And so it was a stay. They they had to stay in the state penitentiary. Hmm. So J.M.'s file is full of over 20 letters written by local labor boards and Pocatello residents calling for his release mm-hmm. in 1923 when he get he gets to go in front of the parole board. And in January, the Larson and Schaefer Home Furnishings owner wrote this letter saying, I understand 
with good many others of the citizens here that the crime committed was done in the heat of passion without any without any premeditation caused by fancied or real liberties by Valdez against Chacon's wife, and that he firmly believed himself to be in danger of his life and used the weapon in self-defense. Another letter from Hodge Carriers and Building Laborers Union, the one that he was the treasurer for, said that uh, he wanted a pardon for J.M. Chacon and his wife, Rebecca. We are reasonably conversant with the true facts in this case, and we unhesitatingly say that from a moral standpoint, at least the Chacones were justified in the act they did. It is undoubtedly true that the deceased, Valdez, was attempting to find an excuse to kill J.M. to the end that he, Valdez, might get Mrs. Chacon who is many years younger than her husband, and a pretty woman. This is the real trouble. Mm. Yeah. and Seems not fair to blame the dead man. Right, yeah. I know, and that's it. Then he continues, the deceased, Valdez, was also of the Mexican race of people. He was born in Mexico, while Mr. Chacon was born in this country, in the state of Colorado, and has resided in Idaho for a great number of years. So... More kind of victim blaming. But uh, in September of the same year, more letters pour in in the support of JM. The deputy sheriff of Pocatello wrote a letter saying that he was a good man and uh, he would make good if he was pardoned. So, you know, someone who arrested him is saying, let the guy go. Mm -hmm. A letter arrives from Marshall Barrett Lumber Company saying that JM was a good person, a hard worker. He had been punished enough and should be pardoned and it described jam as honest industrious he bore a great reputation in the city and he says it would please me and a number of our people to have him grant a liberty and give his citizenship back basically there's not a letter that says anything negative about him right this journeyman plumbers and steam fitters association right we do not believe that he was to blame to any great extent in the matter that put him in this prison but we rather think that he acted as any man would have under the same circumstances all of them they're basically saying he suffered enough he's a great red-blooded american citizen and if the same situations arise for any other man they would have done the same Mm -hmm. so let this man out gl tyler who was the attorney primarily did a lot of the research investigation to the murder He wrote this thing. He said, The assisting prosecuting attorney to Mr. McDougall, who did all the research and investigation to the case, believed that the old gentleman, J.M. Chacon, was to a great extent a victim of circumstance, Mm -hmm. that he probably acted in the capacity that any husband would have done had he run suddenly into a room and found his young wife lying on the floor beside a former sweetheart with a gun in the hands of the former sweetheart. That's a weird statement because that's not what happened. Right. I know. (laughs) Yeah. And this is like two years after the fact so i think yeah then he talks about the former affair say rebecca was a former sweetheart of valdez Mm -hmm. she had found a way to get valdez monthly paychecks Mm -hmm. so like more information to the parole board saying Mm -hmm. it's not his fault right there's something else going on between valdez and rebecca all the support leads to J.M.'s pardon on October 8th, 1923. So about two years, he's locked in here. And he's allowed to go home, but he is told that Rebecca would be deported. And the only way the two could ever remain together is if they left the United States and lived together elsewhere. Right. So let's get to that. Yeah. So um, do you know how many uh, letters of support were in Rebecca's file by chance? Zero? Zero. There were none. (laughs) Because I think it's quite obvious that 
that I think JM was truly a victim of circumstance, much like our last couple episode. And as we saw then too, that Jenny and Rebecca are sort of the instigators of this. Yes. And the men are sort of caught up. I mean, Fred is a little iffy. He may have been a little bit more involved. Um, I do think JM was, I mean, he did shoot and kill um, Valdez, but he was in his mind, I think, trying to defend his right. wife. And there, this doesn't seem to be the case for Rebecca. Every letter was much more for JM than it ever was for Rebecca. Right. I think it's fair that the blame gets put on Rebecca, honestly. We don't have really much about Rebecca's yeah. time in prison. Don't have anything. There's, there's one letter written on her behalf, written by JM. Oh, okay. And this is uh, November 14th, 1923. He writes a letter to the Secretary of State asking that Rebecca be allowed to go home to Pocatello for 24 hours. Just so that she could get all of her things in mm-hmm. shape before she left. Okay. And basically he said he was tired after getting out of prison and he didn't have, <laughs> he just couldn't will himself to put her belongings together. Rebecca was given a parole. Uh, it's not quite the same as JM's though. Um, it is conditional, granted in October 1923. And that condition is that she returned to Mexico on her own dime. The prison's not going to pay for it. And this is going to be effective on January 1st, 1924. So once this goes into effect, now the prison is having to sort of, I don't want to say scramble, but now they're trying to figure out how do we get her back to Mexico? Are there other deportation parties that she can join? And it's sort of it's sort of a mess I, going through there are quite a few correspondences that sort of took some filtering out to try to figure out so in late 1923 warden cuddy wrote the u.s department of labor immigration services requesting that rebecca be included in any deportation parties out to mexico and they write back and they say they don't really expect any deportation parties to mexico anytime soon maybe spokane will have some at one point so write them but we can't really help you So in January 1924, there's a new letter from Denver, which I think is where this U.S. Department of Labor was, and it's discussing a potential inmate deportation from Denver or Salt Lake City. They would, what they would need is a guard to accompany her, preferably a female guard so that she doesn't escape while she's in the restroom. This particular deportation officer who writes Ward and Cuddy, he says, quote, However, I was recently talking with the officer at Pocatello, Idaho, who arrested this woman, and he represents her to be a big, burly Mexican woman of some 180 to 200 pounds weight, who during a drunken brawl placed a revolver to a man's temple and shot him through the head, killing him, and who would need a strong man to guard her. That's not true. Mm -hmm. Um, Rebecca is about 150 pounds. Yeah. and I think there may have been some racism involved in maybe that description as well. Yeah. Um, I was curious if you were going to bring that letter yeah. into play. Because yeah. that is it's, one of those, like, oh, God, it's so wrong in yeah. so many ways. Yeah. And so unless she gained 50 pounds in prison, which I doubt is is the case, especially during the 1920s. Mm-hmm. They, they were treated well, but they weren't treated enough to gain 50 pounds right. well. So um, it really just seems like an exaggeration against a Mexican woman, mm-hmm. but also against a, quote, dangerous woman, which is really kind of a crappy way to treat a woman, even if a person, even if they did mm-hmm. commit a crime. Like, it's not fair to sort of exaggerate their appearance and their strength and the thing that they did. Right. It's just not, not very nice, but we are sort of in in criminal justice so yeah it is what it is 
a February 1st, 1924 letter. So even though hers was supposed to take effect January 1st, they're not going to just let her go. Mm -hmm. They have to have, she has to either have money and have a plan to leave, or Mm -hmm. she has to go out with one of these deportation parties. So February 1st, 1924 is the letter um, with an immigrant inspector from Denver named D.H. McCormide. Um, He wrote Ward and Cuddy that it would be possible for Rebecca to join two Mexican, quote, aliens from the Wyoming State Penitentiary, which is in Rollins, Wyoming. Um, And he was taking these other Mexican inmates to San Francisco. And so he basically sort of lays out what uh, where they're gonna go and so he says that they're gonna take a so they're gonna take a um, they're gonna meet in Salt Lake I think and they're gonna take a train uh, across to San Francisco and then from San Francisco they're gonna take a steamship to Mazatlan Mexico um, and they would leave um, and so basically I sort of looked at sort of the the route that this would take so it would leave San Francisco and go south and then cruise around the little tiny strip of California Baja Sur mm. um, which is that little sort of tail between the main part of Mexico in California mm-hmm. and into the so then it would come up into the Gulf of California to Mazatlan which is just north of Guadalajara oh. um, and so she has to pay her own way so this immigration inspector starts to sort of lay out um, how much everything costs so the price of a train ticket from Salt Lake to San Francisco is about thirty six twenty four, but she is going to have to pay for birth on the train she has, gets a ticket to get on it but if she wants to sleep she has to pay for that mm-hmm. and a birth is either, either $9 for a standard birth or $4.50 for a lower tourist birth. Jeez, yeah. Then there's maintenance expenses on the train, which I'm assuming is food. I don't know what else you would pay for that would be called like maintenance. Like, I don't know if yeah. maybe you have to pay for a shower. I don't even know if they have showers on older trains. That's a good question. I don't know. So yeah. I'm assuming it was food. Anyone into trains uh, yeah. and travels from the 1920s? From the 20s. Yeah, let us know. But that's going to be about $4 a day. $4 a day. And wow. the train, so now the train from Salt Lake to San Francisco takes about 18 hours, mm-hmm. but back then it probably would have taken at least a couple days, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I couldn't find how exactly how long, long that would take. Yeah. And the train is going to go, so Salt Lake, it's going to go north through Ogden and then um, west through northern Nevada and through the Sierra Nevada mountains. Mm-hmm. And then according to a Union Pacific rail map from the Library of Congress online collection, that is sort of that route that they had. But it's not unreasonable to us because we don't know if the Union Pacific was the train that they took, but I don't think it's unreasonable to assume, especially if it's leaving from Salt Lake. Yeah. That was sort of a UP hub. So then they have to get on a steamship. The price of a first class steamship ticket, which he assures is the only class. Mm-hmm. She can't get a, a lower class ticket. Um, and this is on the Pacific Mail steamship line. This is also presumably including birth and meals. That's going to be $87 oh. total. And then while she's in prison, because she's going to have to be kept in prison, both in Salt Lake and in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. she has to pay for that herself. Um, So her detention expenses are about 75 cents to $1.50 per day. Um, And so she's, you know, he says that she's probably going to be detained for a few days in Salt Lake and up to a week in San Francisco. So I did some calculations with a calculator because I'm very bad in my head. Um, so the highest price that she's going to pay if she pays highest birth for everything, if she's up in prison for up to a week and a few days and sort of and spends all four dollars you know per day on the train, the highest price she's going to pay is one hundred fifty-seven dollars and seventy-four cents. And then the lowest price she's going to pay is about $148.74. Do you want to guess around how much that is in 2019? You know I'm terrible at this. I know, but it's a fun game. It's my favorite game. 148 to 157. We'll say like 
$3,000? Fairly close. It's um, for $157, that's $2,373.90. Or for $148, $2,238.46. That is a lot. It's a lot of money. Two years in prison. Right. Which I don't know if she could write JM and say, hey, I need $150 to go back to Mexico where I may never see you again. Right. Um, Or if she sort of has to. And and this this immigration officer, he says, uh, D.H. McCormick asked Cuddy if Rebecca had the finances in order to pay for her trip. And I, I, you know, we don't have the like we don't have a carbon copy of that response, which normally we do, but we don't in this case. So she must have, or she got the money from JM because she is released from the prison on February fourth, nineteen twenty four, and is presumably sent down to Mexico through that whole sort of chain of events. And she um, was in the prison for two years, three months, and eight days. And she was kept about a month and a half longer than she was supposed to. But again, they're not just going to release her. Deportation, yeah. And so in terms of what happens to her after she's released, there are no records detailing her journey home. She was supposed to stay out of the United States permanently. And so I started looking in uh, Mexican records for a, a Maria Villasenor or a Rebecca Villasenor. They are very common names, yeah. again, like I said. And so tracing her in Mexico is nearly impossible. Even right. if I, there was someone who I thought might be her under the name Maria Villasenor, who was born in 1890. Mm-hmm. Um, but she ended up, at the same time she would have been here, there's a marriage record oh. down in Mexico. And so that's not her. Oh. Um, and, and so, cause I think it was, it was not just a marriage record, but then she had children like in the same years that she was oh. in Idaho and in prison. And so we know yeah, that that is not her. Like and this is also, this is sort of a, an issue that I found and you may not find quite as much, but especially because women, their last names change. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So often finding them before is really difficult. I would always come into Anthony's office and be like, I can't find this one. I can't find her before because I don't know what her, her maiden name was. Right. And I was just, I would dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. And then like two days later, I'd be like, I found her. Yeah. Like it Celebrate. was such a big deal. <laughs> we always said we should get a bell between our offices that when we found something big, we could like ring it. It would have just been all me ringing it because Anthony knows everything already. No, it's not true. <laughs> and so then I also tried to look up, like I said, Rebecca Chacon. They're actually, I think Rebecca, because it's such a an anglicized name, there right. weren't very many that I could find in Mexico. Um, there were some Rebecca Chacons in like Los Angeles. Mm. But if I remember correctly, all of them, when it listed race, it said white. So uh, I don't think any of those were her either. So yeah. unfortunately, I just don't, I don't have anything about her when she leaves the prison. Right. But I would have... <sighs> I would bet, sort of based on what we learn about her from her time here, that she probably married someone else, probably wanted to have a nice lifestyle. So I don't know if maybe she found someone in Mexico who would have Mm -hmm. had money and and sort of taken care of her that way, or um, if she was on her own for a little bit. I I wish I knew. I'm really interested in in sort of what her life was after this. Yeah. If she snuck back into the U.S., which Mm -hmm. would have been very possible. I mean... She just would have been deported under the name Rebecca Chacon. So if she goes into California and uses the name Maria Villasenor, it's not like it is today. You can get away with that. Right. And I think I did look for um, Maria Villasenor in California, which, again, since it is so close to Mexico, there mm-hmm. were so many Mexican immigrants um, up up in there. And so it was difficult to find right. anything that might have been her as well. So unfortunately, this just happens sometimes. Right. But, oh. 
Yeah. I know. I really would like to know sort of what happened to her. Uh-huh. Yeah. Re- researching like minority population, mm-hmm. we, we find that there aren't right. as extensive and detailed documents like there are for more of our Anglo-Saxon, right. you know, it's, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. With, with JM, I, I was digging and digging and then I realized there's a letter from October 1936. Oh. The letter arrives from the LA mm. Department of Charity asking for records on Mr. Jesus Chacon to confirm his age, and he was 70, and he was applying for aid under the Old Age Security Act. So mm. this is the very first, this is right, his Social Security, it's about right. a year into so the experiment of Social Security, yeah. which is just starting. And it included the creation of at social security numbers and since he was born in Colorado mm-hmm. or New Mexico. Right. He has a social security number. He's 70, so he can collect on unemployment insurance. Huh. And uh, it added more to uh, when I found a death record for a Jesus M. Chacon. And it said that he was born in 1862, okay. not 1863. Okay. But uh, it says that he died in Los Angeles, California, which would correspond to this, you know, Department of Charity file. So mm-hmm. it's that thing, though. But I, I don't know. Maybe right. that wasn't him. Maybe that was somebody else. Right. And there, there just weren't any other files connected to that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. It's frustrating. It is. It's it really is. frustrating. I really want to know about like the extent of this person's life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is no other record for JM. And hopefully I mean, there, Rebecca there may out be. of trouble. Yeah. yeah, there may be, but it's so hard to tell, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I, hopefully she yeah. stayed out of trouble, but who knows. Yeah. Yeah. Now, speaking of Social Security, Anthony, what is your Social Security number? It no, is. <laughs> Uh, I mean, a really interesting couple that we have. Um, And again, very similar to to uh, Jenny and Fred that we did last season, sort of the man takes the heavier sentence when he really does not seem to have as much to do with it as the woman does. But that really kind of helps us see into the psychology of how people thought women behaved. And it was um, it was never, ever bad enough to to land a serious sentence in the same way that men did, which is so interesting. Because as right. we know, um, women are quite capable of, of doing these horrible things. Yeah. And I do think I said last um, last couple's episode that we didn't have any women in for first degree murder. We do have one. It was um, Elizabeth Lacey. Mm-hmm. She was in for first degree rather than second, but all, the, right. other, um, the, one, yeah. all the other women were in for second degree. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to get into some of those uh, more intense ones yeah. next season because they're intense. Yes. They're gnarly. Oh my they're gnarly. Yeah. Some of them are horrible. Oh. Horrible. But anyway, that's <laughs> that's Yay. in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, there's our couple episode for this season. Yes. Sorry it was sort of lackluster endings, but... <laughs> that's just how some of these stories go. I yeah. mean, this is a podcast about incarcerated people so yeah. it rarely is going to be a sunny outcome right and a fulfilling one but uh when it is those are the ones that i like to seek out but uh yeah this yeah. is just one of those ones mm-hmm. we just don't know yep. yeah all right well good work sky <laughs> and this is our last episode of 2019 you're New right. Year's Eve. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So our next, our and our next and our last episode of season two is going to be in 2020. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. <laughs> We're recording this the day after Christmas, yeah. so 
Sorry, I'm a little... Uh, it's all right. Oof. You're <laughs> a little uh, hungover from the eggnog. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah lots of food. I'm still mm-hmm. full, and I just still ate so much food today, and I'm still eating and yep. still planning on eating leftovers. So. <laughs> That's the, the best oh. part about <laughs> holiday season is yes. all the eating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. Happy New Year. Uh, we'll see you next week. Do your own time. Do your own number. We'll see you next year. <laughs> If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.